Thank you, worship team, as always. Praise God, how good he is. What a sweet, sweet spirit in this place this morning. What a refreshing, what a time of refreshing it is when you get to experience the presence of God. Man, I need that. And uh, it's already been good to be in the house of the Lord. Let me just say something before I get into my message. I want you to feel free to worship in this place. Um, Listen, the Bible tells us how to worship. Do you know there's nothing wrong with clapping your hands? As a matter of fact, clapping your hands is one of the ways that David gives that we can worship the Lord when he writes in the book of Psalms. You know, there's nothing wrong with raising your hands and worship to the Lord. The Apostle Paul said to Timothy, he said, I would that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands. So that's scriptural. And there's two reasons I, I like lifting your hands in worship to the Lord. Number one, because it's scriptural and it's what God says we ought to do. Uh, but number two, when we raise our hands, that's the international sign for surrender. It's saying, Lord, it's not about me, it's all about you. That's why I love that song we just sang. Lord, have your way in my life. Lord, you do what you want to do in and through me. It's no longer about what I want, it's no longer about what I say, it's about what you want and about what you say. It's surrender. And so always feel free to worship uh, through the leading of the Holy Spirit as you are in this place. Take your Bibles this morning. Please turn with me to Acts chapter number 7. We're going to continue this morning in our preaching through Acts. We want to see what a Spirit-filled, Bible-believing, New Testament church looks like, and that's what we find on the pages of Scripture in the book of Acts. As many of you know, I work for the highway department, and I've been working for them now for about 19 years. That don't even, uh, I was thinking about that this morning. That don't even sound right saying it out loud. I mean, it don't seem like it's been that long, but time certainly flies. And so when I first began working about 19 years ago, I had a boss that had a hard time giving directions as to where you were going to be working throughout the day. I mean, uh, we uh, have the responsibility in our office of maintaining the roadways in Marion and Winston County for all state routes. And so that's several hundred miles of roadway that we are supposed to be maintaining. And so he would give you direction as to where you were going to be that day, but he, he wouldn't do it like uh, usually people do it. I mean, on state routes, you've got mile markers. And so if you want to give somebody directions as to where you want them to go on that route to start working, they'd usually give mile markers. I mean, uh, that's the best way to do it. You can say what's well, at the 10-mile mark or the 10.5, the 11.8, whatever it is. You can give them a mile. He, he wouldn't ever do that. He'd just say stuff like this. He'd call you into his office, and uh, you'd be in there, and he called everybody Bud. So he'd start off like this. Hey, Bud, I want you to go out and do this or do that. So he'd call you in and say, I want you to go to this such-and-such such route, go take a right at the stop sign, and I want you to go about two miles, and out there on the right, you're going to see a great big oak tree, and about halfway down that oak tree, there's going to be a limb broke off, and that's where he wants you to start working. Now, I want you to think about the problems with those directions. How many oak trees do you think there are in Marion and Winston counties? Probably thousands, maybe millions. I don't know. There's a lot of them. But it was really tough trying to figure out where he was trying to get you to go to each and every day on whatever particular day you were working or wherever you are working at. So uh, I remember one time he called me into his office. We were supposed to go out and lay a driveway pipe at a man's house. And so he said, I want you to go up on B Mountain, take a left of the stop sign. He said, you'll go about two miles, and you'll start, and the house will be out there on your right. Didn't tell me the address, what house, nothing. I was supposed to be carrying the pipe out there uh, to start work that day. 
And so he said, you know where it's at. You can't miss it. He said, if you, if you don't know where I'm talking about, there'll be a pasture beside the house, and in that pasture there'll be a horse with some big feet. And this is what he's telling me. This is where I'm supposed to go. So I left his office that morning thinking, so I'm supposed to go out and look for some horses with some big feet. Now, how many horses do you think there are in Marion and Winston counties? Probably hundreds, maybe thousands. I don't know. And the problem with those directions is he may see feet differently than I see feet. His big feet may look like small feet to me, or my big feet may look like small feet to him. The directions weren't clear as to where we were supposed to find the house, where, where the living quarters was. And so this morning, I want to give us some clear direction from the Word of God as to where God lives. As a matter of fact, we're going to answer the question this morning, according to God's Word, where on earth does God live? And that's a good question, and that's a question that we all need to be asking, and we all need to answer. I mean, if you were going to write God a letter, what address would you use? If you, does He have a street number? Is there a P.O. box? Uh, does, does God have a zip code? We say all the time, and, and I know what people are saying generally, but they'll say that this is the house of God, that these four walls and this roof is God's house. And so let me ask you, is this where God lives? See, these are the questions that we need to answer according to the Word of God, and we find some direction right here in Acts chapter number 7. So take your Bibles, look in Acts chapter 7, and let's look down first off at verse number 47. We're going to look at verses 47, 48, and 49, and then we'll go pretty much all over the place. I'll be skipping around quite a bit, and I'm going to give you a lot of Scripture this morning, and you don't have to turn to all of them, but I do want you to write them down, go back and look for yourself what God's Word says. Acts chapter 7, verse 47. But Solomon built him an house... Howbeit, the Most High dwelleth not in temples. Everybody see that? He says the Most High, or God Almighty, Jehovah God, that's the word for Most High there, um, does not live in a house made with hands, as saith the prophet. He goes on and says in verse 49, The heavens are my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What house will you build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? So according to Acts 7, 47, God does have a house, but His house is not made by the hands of men. We need to take note of that. We need to find out where on earth God lives. Now, there's something that I want you to see. It may come as a surprise to you this morning as we go through the Word of God. But God has had a series of dwelling places throughout the Word of God. From the Old Testament all the way to the New House. As a matter of fact, He's had four houses that He's lived in from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And we want to look at them this morning. Now one principle that we all need to see when we're looking at where on earth God lives is when uh, the house gets dirty, God moves out. All, everybody needs to know that. We're going to see that as we study through this scripture. As the house gets dirty, God moves out. Because God will not dwell in a dirty house. All right? So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for me and you as believers? God don't dwell in a dirty house. Sometimes people dwell, might dwell in a dirty house, but God doesn't. I heard a story one time about these four young men who were living together on a college campus. And the college that they were living at and going to school in had the mascot, and the mascot was a billy goat. 
and they ran out of a place to keep the billy goat. And so these four young men decided they were going to keep the billy goat in their dorm room. And they went to the dean of the college and they said, Dean, we've got a solution to your problem. You don't have a place that you can keep the billy goat, our mascot, so we want to keep him in our dorm room. And the dean looked at the four young men and he said, Guys, y'all can't keep a billy goat in your dorm room. And they said, Well, why not? He said, Because of the smell. And one of the young men looked at him and said, Well, he'll get used to it. And so, listen, some of us, we might live in a dirty house, but God does it. And we need to understand when the house gets dirty, God moves out. Four houses that we're going to see according to the Word of God this morning. First of all, we're going to see the primary house. Everybody take your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter number 2. Now I want you to know the primary house or the first house that God dwelled with and dwelled in was Adam himself. Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 7. The Bible says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, watch this now, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, watch now, and man became a living soul. So the first house that God built was Adam, that he might dwell with and he might dwell in. Just like the scripture says, God breathed into Adam and man became a living soul. Now, there's four words that you're going to see as we look at these four houses. First of all, you're going to see the word design. We're going to be using that. Then you're going to see the word desecrate. We're going to be using that. And then you're going to see the word desolate. And you're, we're going to be using that quite a bit. And then you're going to see how God sometimes allows the house to be destroyed after it's been desecrated. So let's look at the design here in this first house. Adam was designed by God according to Genesis 2 and 7. He was formed by God, the Bible says, from the dust of the ground. Flip back just one chapter, you're going to see in Genesis chapter 1 and verse number 26 that God created man in his own image. So according to Genesis 1 26 and according to Genesis 2 and 7, God designed Adam, God designed his primary house, his first house. Now, if he created Adam in his own image, then he had to create Adam with a triune nature because how do you know God is triune? God is triune, and, and what I mean by saying that, he's three persons in one. We know him to be God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. If you believe it this morning, say amen. Now all three have distinctly different personalities, but there's only one God. They exist as one with three distinct personalities. God is triune in nature. Now if God is triune in nature and he created man in his own image, then we too are created in a triune nature. See, Adam built his first house, the first, or excuse me, God built his first house. His first house was Adam and the house had three rooms. He said, Brother, what do you mean the house had three rooms? Well, according to the, what the Bible tells us, first of all, Adam had a, a physical body. That would be his outer room. Now, we know that the physical body is what you see before you this morning, and it's what I see before me this morning. It's with our physical body that God has given us that we interact with the physical world. We interact with the outside world. That's the outer room. 
That's the physical body. But there's also an inner room that God created, the soul. Can you say amen to that? That's the second room in this three-room house. The Bible says that man became a living soul. I want you to think about this just a moment. The word soul in the Greek language, we've talked about this many times in our Wednesday night Bible study. It's the word psyche. Now, the word psyche is the same word that we get our English word psychologist or psychiatrist, even psychic. We get that from the word psyche. Now, what is psyche? What does that mean? What does it mean that we have a soul? Well, our soul is our mind, our will, and our emotion. If you got me, say amen. It, our mind, our will, and our emotion is how we interact with others psychologically. We, act, we interact physically with our physical body. We react uh, with others psychologically through our soul that God has given us, the second room in this three-room house. See, the soul is what makes you who you are. And the soul is what makes me who I am. It gives me my personality, my likes and my dislikes, my sense of humor. All of that comes because I have a soul and I can interact psychologically, listen, on the inside and with other people. Now, we've got the body, the physical body, that's the outer room. We've got the uh, soul, the the second room in this three-room house, that's the inner room. Amen, what's on the inside. How do you know I can't see your soul? And you can't see my soul. Now I can see your outer room, I can see your physical body, (laughs) and you can see my physical body, but the soul is on the inside. It's the inner room. But then there's an innermost room, and it's called the spirit. How do you know God give us the physical body, God give us a soul, and God give us a spirit? And listen, these three rooms make up a house that God dwelled in with Adam. Now, it's with the body that we interact physically with others. It's with the soul that we interact psychologically on the inside and on the outside. But it's with the spirit that we interact with God himself. You say, Russell, how do you know that? Well, write this down in your notes. John chapter 4 and verse number 24. Jesus speaking with the woman at the well. He said, they who worship God must worship him how? Boy, that's weak as water. Those who worship God must worship him how? In spirit and in truth. And he goes on to say, for God is a spirit. So we interact with God through that spirit, that innermost room that God gives us each and every human being all human beings have a body have a soul and have a spirit Romans chapter 8 and verse number 16 the Bible says that the spirit of God the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God see for so long I thought that the soul and the spirit were the same thing but they're not because the Bible says in Hebrews 4 and Verse number 12, that the word of God is quick and powerful and divides asunder even the soul and the spirit. So the soul and the spirit are two separate things. Look with me what the Bible says in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter number 5. Guys, put this with me. Put this for me up on the screen. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse number 23. Watch how the Bible puts this. The apostle Paul here praying. For the church at Thessalonica, he says, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body. See these three parts? 
Do you see the three rooms that make up the house? He says the spirit, the soul, and the body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because we've got this three-room house that God has created, that makes us different from everything else. How many of you understand this morning that um, we can know God when all other creation can't know God? Now listen to me. My dog, and I love my dog dearly, I really do. I, I'm a dog person. And one of my best friends is Olobo, my German shepherd at the house. I'll tell Lobo things, some things I don't tell anybody else. <laughs> now, he hadn't started talking back to me yet, but I certainly listen to him if he ever wants to. He's a good friend of mine. And, and so Lobo, uh, even though he's a good friend, I want you to know he can't know God. See, he's got a physical body. He's even got mind, will, and emotion. He really does. I can tell when he gets angry. I can tell that he's got a mind. I can tell that he's got a will when he gets hungry and he starts looking for something to eat. He, he's got all of those things, but he does not have that innermost room. He doesn't have that spirit where he can interact with God. He can wag his tail. He can sit and speak, and he can sit down and shake hands. He can do all those things. But listen, he can't interact with the God who created him. Why? He doesn't have the spirit. But praise God, aren't you thankful this morning? God loved you so much. He wanted relationship with you. He gave you the capacity to know himself. That's an amazing thing. That's a love story in itself that I find right here in Genesis chapter 2. All other created beings, listen, they may have a mind, they may have a will, they may have emotion, but they don't have that spirit that interacts with God. We do. And we get to interact with God. And that is the amazing thing. So we see that this first house was designed by God himself. It was a three-room house made up of body, soul, and spirit. Now that shouldn't surprise us because we see the triune nature of God's creation all throughout creation. When you look at space, space has three different things that we measure. We measure height. We measure width. We measure what? Depth. How deep it is. When you think about time, how many of you know that God um, created time and he gave us a past, he gave us a present, and he gave us a future? How many of you know God himself, like we said before, is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit? So God designed his first house, his primary house. But how many of you know that first house, not only did it have a designer and was designed by God, but the Bible also says that it was desecrated. Now, when I'm talking about being desecrated, I'm talking about being defiled. I'm talking about being made dirty. If you remember, God, the, the Bible tells us that God put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and he said, I've given you one commandment, and that one commandment is this, that you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But what did Adam do? What did Eve do? Eve chose to believe the lie of the enemy when Satan came uh, in the form of a serpent. And he lied to her. And listen, she believed the lie and chose to disobey God. And when she chose to disobey God, sin entered. The house became dirty. And then the Bible says she gave the fruit to Adam, her husband, and he ate also. And when he chose to disobey God, sin entered. And guess what happened? The house got dirty. And how many of you know when we said at the beginning, when the house gets dirty, God has to leave? That's what God said was going to happen. He said, the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he said, you're going to die. And guess what? What God says is truth. Do you know that, young people? 
Do you know that, adults? What God says is truth. You can count on it. Take it and apply it to your life. God said, as soon as you eat of that tree, you're going to die. And they did die. Now, they didn't die physically for another 900 years. Adam lived 900 years after the garden, if you go back and read in Scripture. But I want you to know the moment they sinned, listen, their spirit was separated from God, and they died spiritually. Do you remember how the Bible says that Adam and God walked in the garden in the cool of the day? They had relationship, they had fellowship. Now, does that mean that God had a physical body and walked alongside Adam? No, that means God, listen to me now, had a relationship and fellowship with Adam through his spirit. God was dwelling with Adam, and God was dwelling in Adam in that innermost room, that spirit room. Can you say amen to that? But at the moment when Adam sinned, the house got dirty and God had to leave. That moment they died uh, spiritually. Now let, let, let me say something to you. Later on they died physically. We've seen there is a design. We've seen there's desecration. We've seen desolation because when the house got dirty, God leaves. But then we see that Adam was finally physically destroyed. How many know that's what sin does? His body went back to the dust from whence it came. So we need to understand God's primary house, God's first house was Adam. But then you go on in Scripture, we'll see God's pattern house. Now what is God's pattern house? Well, it's the temple. It's the temple that God had commanded, uh, first of all, David to build. And because of David's sin, he didn't get to build it. So Solomon went ahead and built it. But before that, they had the tabernacle that God commanded Moses to build. And the Bible says that God gave them strict, uh, a strict pattern, strict blueprints of how to build the tabernacle and how to build the temple. Now, if you go back and look, you're going to find that in the temple, they had three rooms as well. They had an outer court. They had an inner court. Then the Bible says they had an innermost court or the holy of holies. Now it was in the outer court that, listen, that represents the physical body. Can you say amen? As a matter of fact, in the outer court is where the sacrifices took place, where the blood was shed. It's in the outer court that the body died. And so the Bible says in Romans chapter 12 and verse numbers 1 and 2 that we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice unto the Lord. That rep, the outer court represents that outer room in our house, our physical body. And then they had an inner court. And, and that's what would represent the soul. It was in the inner court that they intermingled one with another. Amen. And that's why, and our soul is what enables us through our personality to intermingle with others. And so then the Bible says they had an innermost court of the Holy of Holies. Now, who dwelled in the Holy of Holies? Do you remember? Well, that's where the presence of God dwelled. The Shekinah glory of God dwelled there in the Holy of Holies around the Ark of the Covenant. But what happened to that pattern house? It was certainly designed. But then if you remember, in Jesus' day, it was desecrated. Everybody take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter number 21. Matthew chapter 21. 
Look down with me this morning to verse number 12. Watch this. And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. Now look at verse 13. And he said unto them, It is written, My house. Whose house? God's house. Where God was dwelling. In that innermost room in the Holy of Holies. He says, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but you have made it what? A den of thieves. Through the actions of men, because of the sin of men, the house, the pattern house, the temple that God had designed became desecrated because of their sinfulness. So much so, flip over two chapters to Matthew chapter number 23. Matthew chapter 23. Look down at verse number 38. Let's just start with verse 37. Matthew 23 verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem! Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and you would not. Verse 38, behold, watch what he says now. Your house is left unto you desolate. Now he's speaking about the temple there. In Matthew chapter 21, he calls it God's house. But he says, you've made God's house a den of thieves. And then in Matthew 23, 38, he calls it your house. He speaks to them. So what's that mean? When the house got dirty, God moved out. He said, it's no longer my house, it's your house. And he left them with it. Now guess what they kept doing? They kept sacrificing. They kept going through the religious ritual. But listen, time and time and time again, even though they had religion up to their eyeballs, they did not have the presence of God. Why? Because when the house got dirty, God had to leave. You seeing that? It was designed. It was desecrated. It became desolate because God left it. Then what happened? It was destroyed. Matthew chapter 24. And Jesus went out, verse 1, and departed from the temple. And his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Guess what happened? Seventy years later, in 70 A.D., Titus, the Roman emperor, came to Jerusalem and absolutely destroyed the temple where one stone was not left upon the other. Destruction came. So we've seen God's primary house, Adam. It was designed. It was desecrated. It became desolate and finally destroyed. We've seen the pattern house. Now let's see the perfect house. Who's the perfect house? Well, that's none other than the Lord Jesus. How many of you know Jesus came and set right what Adam got wrong in the garden? Jesus came and did perfectly through his birth, his life, and his death and resurrection, listen, in his ministry upon earth, he did perfectly what was needed for God's plan to be fulfilled. He was the perfect house. And you say, well, wait a minute, brother. Are you trying to tell me that Jesus uh, was the temple of God? Absolutely. Everybody take your Bibles. Turn with me to John chapter 2. Watch this right here. John chapter number 2. And let's look down this morning. Verse number 19. I love this. Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple. Now what temple is he speaking of here? 
He's talking about himself. He said, you destroy this temple, and in three days, what did he, he promise he'd do? He'll raise it up. And so according to the words of the Lord Jesus himself, he was the temple of God. He was God incarnate in the flesh. God living in the flesh, if you believe it, say amen. That's who Jesus is. And he came here by God's design. How many of you know he came here through the virgin birth? He was born by the virgin birth so that he might born, be born free of sin. He was born free of sin so that he might be the perfect sinless son of God who never committed sin because of a sin nature. Listen, he became the perfect sinless son of God so that he might go to the cross and be the perfect sacrifice for your sin and for my sin. And then the Bible says he went to the cross, died for you, and rose again the third day. Listen, that's who Jesus is, and he came here by God's design. He was the perfect temple. But how many of you know he was also desecrated, defiled? You say, oh no, wait a minute, brothers. No, the Bible says that he was without sin. Absolutely. There was, he had done nothing wrong when he was punished for your sin and mine. He was holy and righteous. He never had one bad thought, he never sinned in attitude or in action. But the Bible, nevertheless, it says in Isaiah 53, 5 and 6, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. And by His stripes we are healed. His sin, or our sin was laid upon Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 21, write that verse down. It says, for he who knew no sin became sin, that we might be called the righteousness of God in Him. So the sin of the whole world was placed upon the Lord Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about what that meant? When it says in the, in the Bible, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus cried and his sweat became as great drops of blood as he was praying. Let me tell you why his sweat became as great drops of blood. Because the pressure of the sin of the whole world was being placed upon him at that time. I want you to think about the sins of the whole world. You think about all the lies that have been told in Hamilton, Alabama just this morning. And you think about all the millions of towns just like Hamilton, Alabama that's all over this world. You think about all the sin in New York City or in London or in Tokyo. You think about all the sin over all the world, over all time, over all people that was placed upon the Lord Jesus. He was desecrated. He became my sin bearer and your sin bearer. And you know what happened? That temple became desolate. When the temple gets dirty, what's God do? So on the cross, when Jesus was hanging before God and man, and he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That was the only time in eternity that God the Father and God the Son was separated and He was separated because of my sin and your sin. The temple became desolate. And then we see that the temple was finally destroyed. The Bible says that Jesus bowed His head and gave up the ghost and they put Him in a tomb. Praise God, he didn't stay there. 
but he was destroyed. So we've seen the primary temple, that first temple, which was Adam. We've seen the pattern temple, or the, excuse me, the pattern um, temple of God, which was the temple itself. We, we've also seen God's perfect house, which was none other than the Lord Jesus. But I also want you to see God's permanent house. And this is what blesses my soul, and I want to bless your soul. God's permanent house is the believer who have placed their trust in Jesus as Savior. Everybody take your Bibles, turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. Watch this. 1 Corinthians chapter number 6. One of my absolute favorite scriptures in all the Word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse number 19. He asks the question to the reader there in, 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 in Corinth, but also to us this morning. We need to answer this for ourselves. What? Know you not that your body, watch this now, is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own. How many of you understand that when you got saved, when you trusted in Jesus as your personal Savior, that a lot of things happened? First of all, the Bible tells us that your sin was forgiven, that your sin was washed clean by the blood of Christ that you trusted in by faith. It says in uh, Psalms 103 and verse number 12 that our sins are put as far as the east is from the west. So that happened when you got saved. You were washed clean, praise God. Let me tell you something else that happened. Your name was written down in the Lamb's Book of Life. One of my favorite scriptures is when Jesus is talking to his disciples. And they're so fired up because the demons understand and recognize who they are. And he said, you shouldn't be excited that the demons know who you are. What you need to be excited about is that your name's written down in heaven. Listen to me, child of God. If you place your faith in Jesus, your name is written down in heaven. That happened when you got saved. Let me tell you something else that happened when you got saved. When you got saved, you were baptized by the Holy Spirit into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, into His body. He now lives in you. He has set up residence within your heart and life. And the Bible says you are sealed by the precious Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. What am I trying to tell you? In God's permanent house, He does not leave. You say, oh, now, wait a minute, Brother Israel. You said when the house gets dirty that God has to leave. I did say that, but now listen. This is the good news. This is what absolutely blows me away. For those who are in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation. Romans 8 1. Romans chapter 4 tells me, Blessed is the man whom God does not impute sin. <laughs> it also says that it is by faith the righteousness of Christ is imputed on my behalf. So now that because I've placed my faith in Christ, now because I've trusted in Jesus, listen to me now, when God sees me, He no longer sees me in my sin, but He sees me as the righteousness of Christ. Not because of who I am, but because of whom I've trusted. See, when Jesus died for my sin, He died for my sin past, present, and future. And now, because I've trusted in Him by faith, listen to me now, God will no longer impute sin unto me. Isn't that amazing? 
He said, brother, where do you get that? Well, let's look. I want you to know that I'm telling you the truth. Romans chapter 4. Watch this. Praise God. Romans chapter 4. Verse number 5. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifies the ungodly. Now again, class, what's that mean to justify? Anybody remember? To be made right. Absolutely, brother. To be justified is to be made right. And so the Bible says, Romans chapter 4 and verse 5, that but to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifies or makes right the ungodly. What's this now? His faith is counted for righteousness. Isn't that amazing? That means when I trust in Jesus by faith, God counts that as me being righteous. So listen, Jesus took my sin so that I might go free. Jesus tasted death so that I might know life. Jesus tasted my or listen, took my sinfulness so that I might know his righteousness. And it's complete in him. It's settled in him. It's final in him. And that's why it says in verse number 8 of the same chapter, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Go down to verse number 24, 22. And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. That he's talking about Abraham there. Go back and read it for yourself. For lack of time, we can't do it this morning. But he brings up Abraham and he says, Abraham was not counted righteous because he did good things. He couldn't do enough good things to be considered righteous before holy God. He said Abraham was considered righteous because he placed his faith in what God said. He goes on and says in verse 23, Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Verse number five, five, chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore being justified, how? Made right by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God. What I'm trying to tell you is, listen to me. Once you've trusted in Jesus, you become the permanent dwelling place of God Almighty. Your sin has been paid for and forgiven. The righteousness of Christ has been imputed on your account. Brother, what's imputed mean? To be added to. To impute righteousness means that when I place my faith in Christ, God added righteousness to me. And that's true for you too if you're a believer. That's why the scripture can say, we are sealed to the day of redemption by the precious Holy Spirit. Amen. God's permanent house. So where does God live? Where on earth does God live? Brothers and sisters, what a blessing. He lives in me. He lives in you. If you've trusted in Christ. You know what that means? As I stand before you today and preach this message, He stands with me. As I go home this evening and try to be a husband to my wife and a father to my kids, he goes with me. As I go to work in the morning and I try to be a good employee and a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ, he's there too. 
And when I'm going through those times of trouble and trial and tribulation, I'm going through those valley times. How you know he walks with us through the valley? When I'm up on the mountain, praise God, he's up there with me. (laughs) And he's my ever-present help in a time of need. And he's my fortress and my strong tower, the one I run to in times of trouble. And he's the friend that sticks closer than a brother. And he's all these things to me. Why? Because he dwells in me. He dwells in you. He loves you. Everybody stand up. Sometimes I think you view God as a gray-haired old grandpa sitting a million miles away on a throne. And every now and again, he'll get up off his throne just enough to look through the clouds down to planet Earth, see what's going on, and by his power, he'll move the pieces of the checkerboard around to fit his plan. That's sometimes how we, we see the Lord, but Folks, God is in you. He's in you. You are the temple of God. He's as close as your next breath. He never leaves you, child of God. He never forsakes you. Isn't that good news? You are sealed to the day of redemption. Rest in Christ. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, that's all you can do. (laughs) And that's all He asks you to do. Now, if you've not yet been born again, You are still living in sin. And until, listen to me now, until righteousness is imputed on your behalf, God can't live here. And righteousness is only imputed on your behalf, like we read a while ago, by faith in Christ. So the first step for those who have never yet trusted in Jesus is to this morning, Make the decision to say, Lord, I trust you for my salvation, for my eternal life, for my tomorrow, for my today. I trust you as Savior. If you need to do that, today's the day. You come right now, right now. Don't wait. Don't let Satan talk you out of what you know you need to do. Don't grieve the Spirit. If God the Holy Spirit is convicting your heart at this moment, you know you need to be saved. Today's the day you come. If you are a child of God, let me ask you this. Are you serving Him fervently? I'm not asking if you half-heartedly going through the motions. God says, the Bible says that He hates the lukewarm Christian. Or excuse me, the lukewarm lifestyle. Let's put it that way. He hates it. Matter of fact, it makes him sick to his stomach. 
He wants to vomit because of lukewarmness of his people. So I'm asking, are you serving Christ fervently? Is he your everything? Is he your first priority? Do you live for him? In church and out of church, are you living the same way on Saturday night that you're living on Sunday morning? Child of God, if not, listen, today, you need to confess those things to the Lord. And the Bible says he's faithful and just to forgive you. Whatever you need this morning, he is able. You need to be baptized. You've been saved and you've been baptized. Today's the day. You need to join this church. You know this is where God wants you. Today's the day. Be submissive to the will of God. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't say no what God wants for you. Brother, play for us.